Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. And now, please welcome Todd Haynes. A lot of people ask me, you know, uh, what do you do in between your films? Because they don't yeah. come out, you know, that quickly. And really, for a lot of people who are independent filmmakers, and I think most people know that just to get a film, if you write your own work, to get to write it, to produce it, to direct it, to do the whole thing, and then to promote it, it ends up taking like that three to four year cycle uh, before you really can get up to start focusing on the next mm -hmm. project. So for most of my films, they really did follow, mm -hmm. there really weren't big breaks. But after Velvet Goldmine, I was uh, exhausted. And uh, and I, I think I needed to figure out, I, I don't know, I had not been enjoying the process of filmmaking mm -hmm. uh, for some time, like at least the production aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just sort of needed to figure out why and how to make it like, I felt very privileged to be a director, but mm -hmm. I felt like so many directors would be like, oh, I can't wait to get back on the set. I'm like, ooh, can't. And I just never felt that way, you know? Mm. So I, and I'd been living in New York for 15 years at that point, and um, I took, decided to really take a break and try to do other things and read and paint and do stuff that I hadn't done in a long time and just feel excited again about, mm -hmm. cre you know, creatively. And I don't know, it didn't really work. I, 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 uh, <laughs> I read all of Proust. That was the great thing I did that year. That was very positive. But I ultimately was like, okay, I, I'm still figuring out how to change my life in a way that makes the work as meaningful as possible and as enjoyable as possible. And I think that's totally what I realized. The life I was living in New York wasn't enough for me or wasn't going to give me everything I needed. And I don't think I even knew that completely until I left. And I went to... Uh, Portland, Oregon, to write this script, I was sort of like, okay, I'll go write this melodrama, you know. And, <laughs> um, and I did say to myself, after Velvet Goldmine, you know, you don't have to put the entire universe into every movie that you make. Mm -hmm. um, you can just do a quiet, romantic, domestic melodrama. Of course, it ended up having racism <laughs> and sexism and, I mean, racism and, and, you know, sexual orientation and status of women. It had mm -hmm. all the big themes, ultimately. But I, I, it, I went somewhere else to write it. Um, mm -hmm. And I really fell in love with this place and stayed. I lost my apartment in New York later that year. The landlord took it over for an office space. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to stay. Mm -hmm. So I stayed there. And it, it was ultimately a really great place to have in my head, even when I wasn't there throughout this whole production, as a kind of reserve of life that isn't all about my career, mm -hmm. I guess, you know? So it, it has been fruitful in a lot of different ways. Now, you had an impulse to make a melodrama, but um, it, it's not so obvious. I mean, the idea that you would take the Cirque style. When I first heard you were doing this, like doing sort of a Douglas Cirque film, I said, okay, what's, what's the twist going to be? You know, because you did the story of um, Karen Carpenter, but with Barbie dolls, or, you know, for example. So, um, so I sort of waited for the ironic twist, and the, sort of the ironic twist is that, in a, in a way, is that there isn't one. But, but how did you sort of come to that approach that you were going to really, in some ways, try to re, really remake this style? 
remake a movie in this style. Yeah, I, I mean, it's because I don't feel very ironic about, about well, any of the films that I've made, really. Mm -hmm. I, and, and, that, um, and that isn't usually what instigates ideas yeah. or gets my enthusiasm going for a certain, you know, creative yeah. instinct. Um, and I did. I wanted to make a movie, ultimately, that made people <laughs> cry. I wanted mm -hmm. it to be effective affecting in a genuine mm -hmm. way, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to really examine that period, that particular uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, peak, I think, of the women's film, vis-a-vis um, -vis Cirque in the 50s, yeah. and look at how they were made and, and what they were actually trying yeah. to do. And, 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 you, and your, what were your ideas about the 50s? I mean, one thing that, um, you know, by evoking Cirque, you, there are a number of directors who really made, um, who worked within the Hollywood system, but made very strong, dark films that um, you know sort of play around with our idea of, of the innocent 1950s. I mean, Douglas Sirk and Fuller and Nick Ray. <coughs> so, what was your sort of you know thinking about the period and what you wanted to do with the 50s? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to sort of look at it from that kind of oppressive, uh, oppressively beautiful. Um, vantage point that I think is evident in Cirque's films, mm -hmm. but but um, but I definitely decided there was a point where I sort of said, "Wow, if I was really um, as smart as Fassbender, <laughs> I would, or as you know, cool as Foss, whatever, I would set it in a, and if I was yeah. really doing what Cirque was doing relative mm -hmm. to his era, yeah. I would set it in a contemporary setting." Hmm. Um, and I thought about that, and I had five little scenarios that I was working hmm. with one of which was contemporary setting. Um, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't resist, I think, getting into the, the, le the fabric of that particular period visually, the color, the, all of the elements of it. But I ultimately was very much aware of where we were kind of politically at the time. This is, you know, um, Bush had just been elected and I basically was like, we're in the 50s, you know, it was before 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> and that it could be a really good way to talk about where we really are through the sort of detour of this period. And and so what was it like then writing? I mean, then you have to sort of sit down and write dialogue and, and sort of play around with the idea of cliches. And um, so, ha you know, what was that like for you? Just, you know, putting the words in the mouth of these characters. It was weird. It was yeah. very... Um, it was not nearly as arduous a task as I had um, experienced in the past in writing. And mm -hmm. uh, I wrote it in 10 days. I moved to Portland, and I, uh, my sister had knew, who lived there had this new, this is sort of why I went, because this empty Victorian house in the northwest part of town. But I could stay in for three months for free. This lovely lady said I could stay there for, for free. So all of a sudden, you know what it's like to be in a New York apartment and all of a sudden be in a house and be able to, like... Yeah. <laughs> Your arm can stretch out, you know. Um, and so it was, and I did this sketch of Julianne, and I knew that was, she was who I wanted for the the, the part of Kathy. Um, I did this picture of her in the scarf with the glasses and the sort of fall background, still thinking her hair would be red in the movie, mm. and just pinned it up on the window that I was mm. writing in front of, and really wrote the script very quickly, and would come back every night, I like to write at night and be sort of like, wow, it's going to... I mean, I knew this plot yeah. development, but it was sort of fun. I felt like a spectator. I mean, I hate it when people say, oh, the script just wrote itself. Like, that <laughs> makes me crazy, you know. But uh, And I didn't trust it when I finished it, and, mm. and it was a sort of relatively pleasurable experience to mm. write. 
And I wasn't watching, I kept saying, oh, you should be watching the movies during the day and the Cirque films. The Cirque yeah. films and sort of check in on the, right. how close you are and stuff. Yeah. And I didn't. I just, I waited and let it kind of find its own shape, I guess. And then, um, and then of course, later we would arduously, uh, you know, uh, attend to the films themselves in, in every possible way once we were really in production. And how hard was that? As a, This is an independent film and produced by Christine Vachon, of course. Um, but you're you're evoking films that are made you know by the studio system where there are all the resources of Hollywood um, you know at, at the disposal um, of the filmmakers and you don't I guess you don't have that <laughs> yeah but you but but the level uh, is so high in in you know Ed Lock I mean of course mm. you just sort of run through all the great craftsmanship of um, yeah. Ed Lockman Elmer Bernstein so how did you if you could just talk about how you sort of dealt with getting the production level up so I mean, I, it's sort of, it's not that different from what I've learned in any kind of independent scenario. It's just so much about careful, careful, arduous, I keep using that word, but um, <laughs> preparation. Mm -hmm. Just planning it so minutely because mm -hmm. we just didn't have the time yeah. to not know exactly what we were doing every day on set. Um, in terms of the general attention to detail, it was definitely sort of driven by an attention to color. Mm -hmm. um, where I began, by, and I'd never really done this before, but in my preparation, I, I'd started with a big book of visual references that I usually put together for a film with photos and paintings and drawings and just anything that seemed pertinent, even in a very loose way, to the sort of you know climate of the film visually mm -hmm. um, and aesthetically and narratively. Um, but then I went through each scene and I started to do these uh, color spectrums where I'd use about 25 color swatches um, mm -hmm. and just create a color spectrum for each scene that would mm. sort of uh, try to communicate the mood that I was uh, after in ways that went far beyond anything I could actually put words to. At, at what point were you doing this? I mean, was it, this was in pre-production. Okay. This was once I was pretty much, um, this is after. I had the book yeah. before I started to yeah. hire the crew. But once I had the key people involved, then I went and started yeah. to do these color things. So we would have something to really, and then it would ultimately result in meetings with Sandy, costumes, Mark, design, and Ed, DP. We'd sit for days and talk about color and talk yeah. about each each department's participation and role in the hmm. in the development of that mood. You know, and what was there sort of a rule book that you had in terms of how you would shoot? I mean, composition, camera movement, because you're yeah, it was a set of yeah. rules. All of it was about, it, there was a set of, it was almost as if everything about this whole project came from a vernacular specific to this particular period in time. Uh, from the script stage all the way through to every aspect of production, it was as if we had a limited um, dictionary mm -hmm. of terms, color, phrases, movements, gestures, camera, Mm -hmm. That uh, were absolutely finite, really, mm -hmm. and and that you know there would be arrangements and variations within those those terms, but they were the they were the prescribed terms that this film engendered, you know. Mm -hmm. And in, in a way, I think any creative person limits are incredibly inspiring. You know, a series of limitations are what get your creative mind going, and it's why independent film can also be actually can foster a lot of great decision-making yeah. based on the limitations. So, so um, what was it like? I mean, you, you'd obviously had worked with Julianne Moore before, but um, 
Dennis Quaid was a great piece of casting, and he seems to have a. I, I felt he had a really great feeling for what was mm. you know, what you were getting at. I, I have to say, when he first yeah. read the script, the first thing he said to me, we were on location scouting in New Jersey, and I got a call, and it was Dennis Quaid on the phone. I'd never <laughs> spoken to him before, and he said he loved the script, but he said, you know, I have to say that the emotional effect of this script mm. is, and I can't remember his exact words, but something about the emotional effect of this script is inseparable from its presentational style. Hmm. And I thought that was so, it wasn't even saying, I know that you know we have to get past the presentational style to get to the emotion. Mm -hmm. It was like the emotion that this kind of film has to give is yeah. based on that different kind of acting, yeah. you know? And, and that style, I think, reflected every aspect of the script. But I, what he was saying, I, think, I thought that was yeah. really, hmm. so he really understood yeah. You know, stylistically, what a challenge it was. People always ask me, like, about the content. Was that hard for him and all that? Yeah. And it wasn't. Yeah. But what really impressed me was the way all of these actors understood um, the the limits of of that kind of presentational acting. Yeah. But also the unique kinds of emotion that it can communicate that that is different and specific to it yeah. and different from naturalism and what it yeah. can bring you. But I, I felt, to me, one of the insights that he had was uh, about. 50, the fifties, or about men, um, men in the fifties, was that this, the presentational style also relates to like how this char the character, the husband, like a businessman, might have acted in the fifties. That in a way you can use, you know, he sort of used um, the behavior and lines that were expected. Sure, that, absolutely. That, that real men, <laughs> you know, would be sort of playing their lives out as a script in order to hide. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. As yeah. Julianne's character as well. Yeah. It's the prescribed way to be, you know. Yeah. And, and yet, uh, and yet, even when the, the actors in these in this film um, are communicating something outside of what's prescribed in their society, yeah. it's still written and performed with a very different kind of directness, I think, and yeah. cleanness almost. It's like we were trying to actually define what the difference is in the performance. It's not like they're big and theatrical act performances or characters, you know? Yeah. It's not big, it's, it's very clean, it's very direct. And what I found when I cast smaller roles in the film is that actors who brought an innate naturalistic approach mm -hmm. um, couldn't, the, 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 the words on the page sounded way more ludicrous when you tried to kind of throw them away or tether, uh -huh. tether them. Method, and, uh, or, yeah, or, or, or just break them up and yeah. like, you had to commit to the words first in a very direct way, which is hard for a lot of actors to do. Yeah. And it takes a sort of courage. Um, but uh, all the leads understood it without us having to really yeah. work on it, you know. And, and, it, and it was great. I was lucky with them. Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of paradox. I wonder, the phrase imitation of life, which is so key to, I mean, it's, it's a title of a Douglas Sirk film, but it could apply to all of his films and could apply to any film. Any film, I guess, but your <laughs> films. Um, but how does that come into play for you? Because there's this, you know, you've, you're on one hand, you're dealing with artificiality and stylization to get at very real emotional. Impact. To me, that's what film is. I don't think that's any different from any movie. It's mm -hmm. all fake. Mm -hmm. And I think when you begin by acknowledging that it's artificial to begin with, yeah. you have a, a much greater possibility of getting to something genuine mm -hmm. than when you set out to be to depict real life, whatever mm -hmm. the hell that is. Yeah, um, yeah, that's mm -hmm. what has always drew, excited me about film, and it's, it's sort of true, I think, in various ways for all my films. Mm -hmm. Was um, Julianne was working with her 
this performance was it very different than the performance in Safe because of the different time period or style of the film? Can you compare the two different? Oh, the performances I think are extremely different, and the characters I think are also extremely different, yeah. uh, excluding obvious sort of you know <laughs> connections that you yeah. can see. But I think Kathy is so much more. Um, oh, Carol White's just so much more <laughs> at a preliminary stage, I think, in her in in her quest, I guess. You mm -hmm. know, she's just uh, she's at the very initial formation, I think, of a sense of identity. If if she achieves that at mm -hmm. all in the film. Whereas mm -hmm. Kathy is at least susceptible to a desire and mm -hmm. can at least go there. I, I think that wasn't even a possibility for Carol White and Safe. But you went into production, uh, I think, right, you know, into shooting right after September 11th. Yeah, and, um, it happened during our pre It took two weeks out of our precious six-week pre-production schedule, yeah. actually, which wow. was extremely hard on this film. But, and, but how, did, how did this affect your thinking at all about the film, just because you're... Um, you know, so focused on making this film that, you know, ultimately says a lot about the present day, but... I don't know if it... I mean, what has ultimately resulted from that, yeah. and it was definitely my first concern about it when it was happening that day even, was just that it was going to give a sort of carte blanche, you know, sort of incentive yeah. to the administration to unleash all of its, you know, most extreme mm -hmm. uh, kind of global and and domestic uh, agendas. Um, at the time, I think everybody was just scrambling f for some yeah. sense to make out of it in a very emotional and direct, mm -hmm. you know, direct way. And many people, at first, I think we all felt like, how are we going to really do this? How are we going to yeah. make a movie now? But I think very quickly, and for people who were in New York during that time, it, I think everyone sort of wished they did have some. A after a certain point, you yeah. kind of wanted to get into something and apply yourself into something wholly, because it was very hard to live in that you know, day-to-day mm -hmm. -day sort of um, climate, I think, here. It's hard. And uh, I'm just going to throw it up. To, I want to ask one more thing before I throw it up into the audience. But um, you're now, you know, now the response to this film has been pretty amazing. I mean, so far, it hasn't opened theatrically, but it's played a lot of festivals mm -hmm. and um, is being, you know, talked of, um, you know, in all this sort of Academy Award buzz and things like that. So, uh, you know, what has the, the re initial response been like for you? I mean, just... It's it's you know it's weird for me it's great but it's um, it's sort of an, a little a bit of an out of body yeah. uh, kind of experience for me you know mm -hmm. at least at least in terms of it, it it being well received by by very mainstream critics mm -hmm. who aren't usually the critics <laughs> who you know find a way into my film my films I think what's funny is that I've always loved you know some of my favorite Hollywood films are are those that play to a popular audience in their time like Hitchcock or Billy Wilder or whatever, but um, have given us plenty of stuff to think about ever since mm -hmm. in ways it may, it may not have been considered or looked at at the time. Uh, but I've never really felt that I, my work was a candidate for that or that was my goal or, you know. Mm -hmm. And it definitely feels like this film, and I like that about it. I love that it's a film you can take your mom and your grandmother <laughs> to and they don't have to know anything about Cirque or be film buffs or, you know, to enter yeah. into the story. I think that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, if that ends up happening, it would be yeah. really cool. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, this question right here. Um, I'll just repeat very quickly so people can, can hear. To, um, to compare the different experiences of Velvet Goldmine, which was a very difficult production, and this production. And then with Julianne Moore, the questioner said he heard that she doesn't like to rehearse that much. She likes to be spontaneous. And did you find that to be true? 
Yeah, this was this was a super tough one too. We had um, we had well, uh, you know, what's interesting when people say, you know, well, we've certainly progressed since the '50s in ways, certain ways, like. For instance, women's, you know, the choices for women in the world today is, are way better than back then. And I have to realize that the very fact that this was a film about a woman that wasn't going to be portrayed by Julia Roberts in the film meant that this is a serious commercial risk for financiers. That fact alone. And so when the three financial bodies that were first interested in committing to this project got together at can two cans ago they said uh, 12 million dollars is all we can commit to this script they love the script they love the idea but with Julianne Moore as carrying the film 12 million that's it we never had a budget that was 12 million dollars we didn't think we could get one that would be much you know that was gonna be more around 14 million and that two million dollar difference was painstakingly difficult to get the commitments to uh, by all the people involved, and even that made it a very, very tough film, and the Bond Company was not um, <clears throat> very um, encouraging, and it was almost like with more money than, like twice as much money as I had for Velvet Goldmine, and as much preparation and planning had gone into it, it still felt like by the powers that surrounded us that we were taking a bigger risk than we ever had in the past, you know what I mean? It made it, it, made it tough. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily the certainly is not the fault of the financiers involved, that fact, that that's true, I guess, as a risk, or just, or just that the risk of a, of a film about a woman. I mean, it's ludicrous. It became true when we were, when we were confronted with who to cast for Frank. It was like Julianne said she had, uh, there was a project about Amelia Earhart or like something like that that she was the lead in. She went to every male lead that she knew, you know, who brought money or some cachet to play second to her, and they all gracefully declined because no one will play second, no leading man, unless they're paid a lot of extra money for it, mm. will play second to a woman. You know, it's, it's really sad. I think that's worse than it was in the 30s and 40s <laughs> when there were a, a handful of amazing female box office that we guarantee box office, if it was Betty Davis or Joan Crawford or you know, Catherine Hepburn, whatever. Um, that's so not the case today. So it's it's really uh, that was that made it bad. Julianne's not rehearsing is not a big problem. Um, we did rehearse. Um, for me, it's it's about at the very least getting a sense of space and movement through, you know, where the actors are going to move around on the set, and how, and then where the camera will go. So I need to do that with with the actors. Um, so Julianne and Dennis and I, you know, worked in the house and did rehearsals um, on the set while it was being built to get a sense of movement. Uh, I don't need, I didn't need um, acting rehearsals uh, uh, with them. But, um, but of course, hearing them read the lines and, you know, you, I felt secure. I felt confident about what, what was starting to happen. So. Okay, right here? Oh, I'll repeat it, don't worry. Okay, did you ever consider the... Um, having Dennis, you know, the Julian, Julian Moore and Dennis Hayward's characters come together at the end. I you mean, mean you even get on the train together? As an sort of, ending, you mean? Or just get together romantic? No, I didn't. I, I knew I wanted this to end um, sadly. That I did know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, down here. 
Okay, this film, the narrative uh, obviously varies from a Douglas, a Douglas Sirk film. Okay, but is there any way that you wanted to deviate filmically from, from the Sirk style? I mean, how did, you know, how did you want to be different than a Sirk film? Um, no, I didn't really. I was, I, I, I was able to learn so much more, I think, um, in s at so many levels about not deviating, where I didn't deviate than where I did. And in fact, to me, the way it deviates from Sirk narratively isn't even that much. Uh, it's, I mean, people say, oh, it's not like a Cirque film because they talk about homosexuality. But I think what's more weird about this movie is that it talks about homosexuality by showing, you know, two guys sort of kissing for a second and that's it, you know, and, and the word is barely mentioned in the film or the word, the F word is used once in the movie and it's actually a shocking event. I mean, I, I, an early draft of the script I had I toyed with the idea of them being more sexually explicit in the scene where she discovers the men in the, in the office. But it was so much about this really careful balance of, of, um, of shock value or of, or of explosive material and keeping it completely harnessed by the fact that it's about her and that it has to be ultimately sort of tempered by the fact that it's her story. And, you know, most films would want to, so I couldn't have, you know, more than one scene in The Shrink with Dennis Quaid. Because all of a sudden your attention would be like, ooh, what's going on over there? It was hard because, of course, that's where all the action is, is off screen, really. And similarly, the racial themes are outside of this house. So there's sort of, the real big stuff is going on elsewhere. Um, and most movies would be there. You know, so it was it was definitely all about maintaining a constraint that I thought was effective and um, dramatically um, uh, impactful in his films. Okay, over here, what happens to the three major characters after the end credits? Oh, I, <laughs> I mean, I think that what's really interesting is how much people ask me this for a film like this that seems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I, I know, what I think what's interesting is why, like, Elmer Bernstein talks about it constantly. He's always like, well, I think she's going to be fine. I think she's learned <laughs> so much. And I really, and he did. And he, he, his last cue he called Beginnings. He named it Beginnings, you know, that her life is really starting when the film ends. But I, it was really curious to me. I, and I actually brought this up. My friend Kelly, who we were talking mm -hmm. about before, she's a filmmaker in New York, Kelly Riker. And she watched the movie at a press screening here. She's a good friend of mine with her dad. Her dad was in town. And she was at the press screening and she, felt like she couldn't totally get into the movie because her dad was right next to her and she wanted to really be able to get into it, but she kept thinking about what her dad's making of it. You know, he's like an ex-detective from Florida. And then John Waters was sitting in the front row in front of her, so she was thinking about what John Waters was thinking, you know. And she, the next day her dad leaves and she's coming out of a subway and all of a sudden she just bursts into tears in the middle of, and she's not really a crier type of person, you know. And she just kept saying to herself, I know they'll write. I know they'll write to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that because she, you know, intellectually, <clears throat> you know, she knew better than to worry about these things. But I think there's something about, like, if the movie was made in today's style, Kathy would come home and she'd say to Sybil, you know, Sybil, I've, I've always 
you know, live my life in the shadow of the men around me. And now I really feel like I've learned that I don't, you know, there'd be this whole articulated resolution that, that Sybil would respond to. And you'd feel, we'd all feel really like it, it really ended, the movie ended, and the character learned something, you know. But we wouldn't be thinking about it the same way afterwards. Because I think these movies of this time, characters aren't articulate in that way. They don't articulate what they learn. They're moved around by the society. And so we kind of have to watch it from a bit of the outside. And we have more of a job, I think, afterwards to actually make that connection ourselves, you know, what they learned and what really happened and where it's going to go. And that's an amazing thing about the films from this time. So, uh, Tell us a little bit more about Elmer Bernstein. I mean, the score is quite amazing. And um, obviously music has is always comment, making some sort of emotional comment. And... Um, and he, uh, of course, wrote many great scores in the 50s. Just could you talk about what his ideas are and what your collaboration was, was like? It was, so, I mean, he's just, oh, I just love this guy so much. He's, um, he's 80 years old. And he's the most alive, you know, vital person I think I've ever met. I mean, he's just an incredibly um, articulate and engaged human being. Um, and I was scared. I mean, I was like intimidated, you know, to work with Elmer Bernstein. Like, how, how do you say, you know, actually, I don't really like that. <laughs> you know? Can you write that again? You know, um, but he made me feel extremely, um, you know, he loved the story. He loved the, he loved how it was about the woman. He loved how it was the weird contradictions of, of it, that she was at the bottom rung of the hierarchies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dueling higher, you know, the dueling, you know, human needs, right. you know, the racial themes and the sexual themes. And, and that as a woman, she all occupied the bottom rung of that, of that dynamic and had to lose everything sort of so the men could find their way right. in a way. Um, and he found that to be really poignant and true. And, and uh, uh, so I think we were totally fixated on the same kind of emotional core of what the movie was about. Um, and again, because these films don't over state their their points of view mm-hmm. there's a space for music too to supplement and to tell you more mm-hmm. than the film yeah. is already telling you. I think we hate music today when it te- affects you emotionally because the film's doing the same thing and the, everything's doing the same thing on top of mm-hmm. itself and you yeah. feel like ah oh, just stop I get <laughs> it you know but these films they actually leave I think they yeah. really leave space for each thing to have a role that's that's important so the music which is very strong you know yeah. has a, a need for it to be strong and um, anyway it was a wonder for me it was just amazing uh, humbling and inspiring um, mm-hmm. relationship to have mm-hmm. with okay. somebody yeah thanks so, um, back there yes Yeah, the character of the gay art dealer, did he have a, a bigger part in other drafts or? Not much. There was, a, he, he spoke, he had a speech. He did have a speech that we, that I cut. Not because he didn't do a great job. It was just trying, that scene's really long. There's a lot that goes on in the art gallery scene. So we did trim and tighten and tuck like most people do in their films at some point. Um, and I, and I think, you know, I li- I was attached to it, but I also felt like it was strong without it was fine without it. That you that it kind of communicated everything 
that you sort of see visually with him. But there wasn't really an, uh, a point of, of uh, seeing the social sector reacting to him. That was never really in the script. Okay, time for a few more questions. Um, let's go, go back back there. Yes. Okay, well, I, I get the question about, the, you know, the inspiration for this movie, was there like sort of one defining thing that happened where you just, just sort of came to you? Or? Not, not really beyond a visual, a strong visual um, image of uh, sort of what I described when I did that drawing of, uh, it was a marker drawing, so it had color. So it was about the fall, the blue sky, the intense gold and red trees, her, which I imagine initially is red hair, um, the dark sunglasses and scarf and, you know, I think it was not really, no. But the plot is such a sort of condensation of um, uh, existing storylines like All That Heaven Allows, um, sort of meeting aspects of imitation of life, meeting aspects of The Reckless Moment, the Max O'Fools film. Um, so... I had some other scenarios that had, that had some of them dealt with the, the theme of a husband's homosexuality and the woman's relative role in, in different ways. And some of them had Hollywood themes. Like there was one about, you know, how the husband would... Because actually what's interesting about the 50s is that there was a lot of homosexuality um, kind of being accepted in this new kind of more cool, more A-list kinds of films than melodramas at, mm -hmm. at Universal. But like... You know, the kind of Mar Montgomery Cliff and James Dean and Marlon Brando circles. There were Tennessee Williams adaptations. There was a real sophistication um, that included gay circles, you know, at that time. And it obviously and ultimately affected the way men were starting to get portrayed on film as this whole new kind of interiority was being explored and these male characters uh, that we hadn't seen before. I mean, depictions of women would take quite some time to get overturned. But in the 50s, it was starting to happen with men. Um, and uh, and I sort of thought of a story where the husband's a struggling actor and he gets kind of sucked into a, you know, a little Hollywood set of gay men and becomes kind of his career starts to improve a, as a result. <laughs> and But it's really still about the wife and how she is left out of it. And, and they kind of make fun of her primness, you know, keeping the house and the decorum together while he's benefiting from all of these allegiances, you know, whatever, something along those lines, but. Hmm. But you had, the, you know, you had um, these women, there was an audience, like you said before, for these women's melodramas, and you had all these great directors like Minnelli and um, George Cooper making, you know, dealing with a lot of the same kind of issues that you've, that you've been interested in. And I'm just wondering if, um, like, why is it so hard, like, why is it so hard today to make a woman's melodrama? Where do the audience go for those films? You know what? You I mean, w whether or not we would call them yeah. melodramas, yeah. I just think the fact that w films about women's lives and women's experiences, yeah. the fact that they're not being made yeah. and that they're considered financial is absurd yeah. and ludicrous. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be uh, a Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, kind of comfy domestic setting with a little mm -hmm. bit of a suspense or, I don't know, you know, the, the, the closest things that you see today um, don't really seem to be even that much about lived experience or, you know, yeah. the sort of smaller problems that people face in their lives uh, that don't have big guns or explosives <laughs> involved, you know. Okay, right here. And we'll just do one more after this. 
Okay. Okay, well, so the question is that all of your films in some ways have been period films. In some cases, it's been the 1970s. In this case, the 50s. It's just what, you know, what does that mean? The idea of doing a sort of period film, what does that mean to you? Um, yeah, I think it's just part of that, that whole, well, in some ways, I think it's always, my instinct is always sort of metaphoric to sort of talk about what's happening in a contemporary, our society now but through the sort of detour or the parallel or the metaphor of another era. Um, and, but I also think I enjoy the costumes, you know? <laughs> I like getting into the drag of that period and really exploring it. But I do think it's a lot about what you're saying is that it's never, um, or as you suggested, it's never anything about, it sort of goes along with the idea of history being Something we learn through images and movies and and uh, constructed ideas that that come to us very much from privileged sources. You know, if it's not the people in power writing the history books, it's you know the movie makers telling us telling it to us in images, and that that's how we understand the idea of history. That's how we understand the idea of the past. So what's to say that using those images is any less real or authentic than to kind of pretend that you know what it was really like back then and to give it to us in a grittier uh, fashion, or really the grittier fashion is usually just the contemporary codes of naturalism imposed on the costumes from the past, you know? Uh, so this film definitely is taking to absolutely, to t you know, with a full embrace, the idea that history and memory are constructed and handed down like cinema you know, and that it's a kind of parallel world that we all share, you know, we all have access to, that's not true and not false, but it's real, you know. Okay, well, thanks. Well, that's so articulate that we'll end there. <laughs> and, uh, and the film opens on Friday, so thanks. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.